just a few housekeeping um, announcements before we go. We, this is uh, session four, connecting with different partners in society in the Robert Emmett Theatre. Uh, my name is Mags and uh, I'm your room manager for the day and uh, Sandra's up there at the back so if you need any help just come and grab us. Uh, the fire exits are all at the back of the room, there's just two there at the back. So if any emergency happens just go towards the fire exits and we'll be able to direct you. Um, the nearest bathrooms, as you probably have familiarised yourself with by now, are down the basement. There's also ones in the stairwells that are probably the fastest. Uh, the next item on the conference programme after this is the AGM, and that will be on the lower ground floor in the Edmund Burke Theatre. Um, uh, it'll be streamed in here as well, but I think possibly the Edmund Burke Theatre will probably have space, so we probably won't be using this as an overflow room, but just bear that in mind. The meeting of, it's called the Meeting of Participants, and every, all the Libra delegates are invited. Um, so I'll just hand you over to your chair for the day, uh, Emily Barté. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Good afternoon to everyone. I am very pleased to be here and to chair, and very honoured to chair this session. Uh, I am so Emily Barté. I am deputy director of um, University Jean Moulin Lyon Trois uh, Libraries in France, <laughs> and um, uh, I'm also uh, a member of the uh, CPC, the Program Committee of Libre. So I think this session will very well demonstrate. Uh, how and what exactly Linda Doyle, our key speakers, has said a few minutes ago. Our uh, speakers uh, will show you and us how libraries are working for but with people and even with people who are not very used to express uh, themselves. So, uh, whether researchers of uh, national library or students with autism spectrum disorder or multiple partners from the academic world or culture um, in national library they all experiences um, the, sorry our speaker experiences anchor the library's mission in today's challenges such as usage of national collection by researchers uh, inclusion of different kinds of population, or creative use of text and data mining. These issues will question about librarian skills and the way we are usually manage things. If libraries are keen on connection with uh, the needs of their patrons, could they deeply change the way we cope with the evolution of the library experiences? So firstly, this is Martin Klepper, Head of Research Department of the National Library of Netherlands, um, who will share with us the five years experience called Researchers in Residence. And then Geraldine Fitzgerald and Sjoven, no, <laughs> Sjoven, yeah, uh, June, both from Trinity College Dublin, uh, will explain how they work with their students who have uh, autism spectrum disorder. Ines Byrne, then from the National Library of Scotland, will discuss how her library is empowering the reading community with TDM, text and data mining. And finally, it is Dr. Nick Barrett, director of Senate House Library, 
um, at University London, who will shed the light on the role of special collection and academic library space in providing support to people living with dementia. So, Martin, the floor is yours. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, can you hear me? Does this sound right? Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining this session and the program committee for accepting our paper. Uh, we're really excited to present the work that we've done the last five years uh, called the program The Researcher in Residence. And this is a, a paper together with my colleagues Lotte Willems uh, and Stephen Klaasens. Lotte is at the conference but joined another session, which we also thought was interesting. Uh, but for any other questions, she, she's around here. So I'm happy to introduce you to her. So at the KB, we do all sorts of stuff and have all sorts of activities. Obviously, we restore uh, all the publications that had ever been published in and about the Netherlands. We restore these publications. We save them in our, in our storage areas. We exhibit them to visitors. Uh, we allow people to, to study them in our study room. And of course, we digitize them. We digitize them a lot for now for 12 years. Uh, and this is my favorite image always showing. When I have visitors visiting uh, the library, I always first take them down to the basement on, on, on the right part. And then I take the elevator up and I always say, now we step in the time machine, uh, go to the sixth floor where our high-tech data center is and saying, this is the library of today and tomorrow. Uh, and with this digital library, we build all sorts of services. One of those services is Delphor.nl, where, where users can do a keyword search through the digitized newspapers. Uh, for example, if you search on Dublin, on the top of the right uh, page, you, you get a results list. Um, you can further uh, select using facets, for example, on the left, using advertisements or articles. Uh, you can actually read the newspaper, look at the pictures uh, of, of some sort of a prince visiting this town. Um, and it's popular. It's being used a lot by all sorts of users, uh, mainly what we call amateur researchers. So my neighbor, 50 or 85 years old, almost uses it daily for his research on his family history. Uh, and it's really this kind of research that is very popular. But since the rise of digital scholarship, we see a new type of researcher saying, well, this is nice, but I want more. I don't just want to do a keyword search. I just want all your data. Give me the data and I want to build stuff that, I, uh, that, that answers my research question in the best manner. And for those kind of researchers, we, we created a service called Data Services, already exists for six years right now, where researchers can request access to our data through all sorts of means. Now, these researchers build all sorts of well, kind of cool stuff, and actually people from our department also build all sorts of cool stuff. And we share the things that are being built in our, on our lab website because we want to share experiences and, and make this as open as possible. So these are the more traditional roles and functions that we have. And since a couple of years, uh, the National Library of the Netherlands is also responsible for the digital infrastructure of the public library system in the Netherlands. I can tell you all about it, uh, but it goes way beyond the time that I have. But one of the services that we are responsible for is, is what is called the online library. So as a member of my local public library, I can borrow e-books, for example, through the online library which is a great service. I just borrowed this morning two new books. Uh, you can browse books, you can find books uh, and put them on your own e-reader or on your, on your phone. So that's a complete new service and also a complete new user group for us as a, as a national library. And to show you the types of users that we have, we have created this, this pyramid of users or our user pyramid, where on the, on, the, on the bottom, you see the biggest user group, the people using the services of the public library. And for them, we have built this service, the, 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 the online library. Uh, 
The middle layer is the more the, 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 the researchers, both professional as well as amateur researchers, which in the Netherlands are estimated about 1 million users. And, and for them, we've created Delver. And on the top of the layer, uh, there are what we call the digital humanities or the digital scientists. It's a small group of users, but a, a very intense and heavily users, uses a lot of our, of our data. And for them, we have services like data services or KB Lab. Now, in my talk, I will fo focus on the top of the pyramid, the types of users on top of the pyramid, because five years ago or six years ago, they were new to us. They had different user questions. They wanted other stuff from us, and we needed to learn what they wanted to do. And in order to, to do that, we created the Research and Residence Program. So in, in my talk, I will first tell more about the Research and Residence Program, then share some experience on what benefits we had from the program on the short term, on the long term, and I will end uh, by discussing the roles that we are now playing because of this program as, as a full researcher partner with researchers. So first, the Research and Residence Program, what is it? Now, it was founded in, tw in 2015, and our main question was, what are the changing needs of researchers within the digital domain? How can we best help them or serve them uh, with the data that we have? And we thought we can do a survey or we can talk to them, but why not have them over in our department, in our offices, let them work for a couple of months on a research question that is their fundamental research question and that they would like to answer by using the data that we have at the KB. And for that, we, we set up this research and residence program. So we actually invite researchers to spend uh, six months uh, at our place uh, for a part of the, for half time. We actually pay them so they don't have to teach or do other stuff. So they are free to work on the project that we have. We uh, hook them up with a research software engineer that we have in the department to help them to get the data and to build applications that answer their research question. So they create tools or they create derived data sets that we then share again on our lab website. Um, but the most important part is they work in our office. So not in the reading room, but in our office, right beside the colleagues of our department. And it looks like this. So this is a boring office uh, area with just computers and desks. But what you see here are two research and residence and two software engineers. So the guys in the middle, the one with the glasses is, uh, is Melvin Wavers, was our previous research and residence. And the guy who's looking at the right, so you don't see his face, is Thomas Smits, also research and residence. And the guy on the left is uh, Willem-Jan Faber, is, is one of our research software engineers. And on the right is Juliette Loney, also a research uh, engineer. So this is, this is not staged. This is actually what was happening. And I quickly took a picture uh, because it really illustrates what, what is happening over there. So they're sitting on the desk and, and our colleagues are right besi beside them. And just to give you an example of what kind of projects they are working on, uh, I would like to show you the project of Thomas, uh, the guy who, whose face you didn't see. Um, Thomas is a media historian uh, working at the Radboud University in the eastern part of the Netherlands. And he wrote a dissertation on the rise of images in historical newspapers. And he said, well, uh, Martijn, Delft is really nice. I can uh, click on the facet illustration with caption. It's, it's in Dutch, but that's what it means. Um, but I, I want to pinpoint the moment in time when, Im when photographs become dominant in newspapers over drawings or cartoons or, or other types of uh, illustrations. But it's really hard to do it in this way, because when I click on the facet illustration with captions, I do get photographs, but also cartoons, drawings, weather reports, chess plays, actually. And he says, there are so many newspapers in there, it's not doable to do this manually. 
So can we do something smart or something novel with all the data uh, and build something that I can do, can pinpoint this? Now, this was an exciting question because it's, uh, the, the thing is we're a library, so we're, we're kind of text-focused. But this question was about images, and we have a lot of images in our textual sources. So we thought, okay, this is, this is cool, this is new, this is where we can learn of as well. So we focused on, on a domain that we weren't aware of uh, or weren't well known of uh, called computer vision. The computer can actually analyze images. And the best way, what I always use to show the power of computer vision is this. So I played a lot of word views on my phone. It's, it's the digital version of Scrabble. And I always lost. Uh, but then I participated in a big European research project about computer vision. And there was this group in Leuven who said, well, Martijn, no worries. We built this app to see what we can do with computer vision, and you will never lose again. And indeed, I did. I'm still winning, but all my friends now know that I'm a big cheater. Because this, this, this app, what, it, what it's basically doing is you can make a, a print screen of the board, you load it in the app, and what the computer then does is analyzing all the letters on the board and the, the values, and says, well, with these letters, Martijn, if you play a maze, you get 32 points. And it's a really an easy example of showing the power uh, of computer vision, and there are way more examples, and they are really mainstream right now. So this is an app, I'm not sure if you like Sudokus, but hey, uh, this is solved as well. This is really, this is working on your iPhone. Uh, so I don't, uh, um, sometimes I play Sudoku more as a way of relaxing, but this is really showing the power of what, it, what, what a computer can do with your phone. And this is also something Google Lens is, is an app where you can point your camera to uh, objects or places, uh, like this is the, the building from the KB. If I point it to the KB, it, it, it recognizes the sign KB, and if you then click on it, you get all sorts of information. Now, these techniques are out there. Uh, there's a lot of open source available. The, the computing power ha has, has risen. So we thought, hey, let's, let's experiment with that. What can we do if we apply these techniques to the type of resource question Thomas had? Um, and we succeeded quite easily, actually, uh, also because we have a fantastic research software engineer. Uh, we trained a neural network, not going into details, uh, but a computer basically, so we, we put a lot of images in the computer and asked the computer, can you sort the types of images that you see in there? And the computer then says, well, I think this, these images are, are one type. The computer doesn't know they are maps, but we can, and Thomas can because he's the domain expert. And the computer says, well, we see these kind of images, we see these kind of images, and we see photographs as well. And once we've done that, or let the computer and the algorithms do that, we could actually, well, make charts on, on when these images arise. So this is a chart made by Thomas where the lines you see not only that images are, are, are rising a lot, uh, but also uh, Thomas was able to really pinpoint in 1927 uh, photographs became dominant. So for him, this was a great way uh, for his research. For us, it was a great way to learn new techniques. Computer vision was completely new. But also, if you go back, this categorization was not made during our digitization process. So during our digitization process, uh, the company that made the images only said this is an, is, is an illustration with a caption. But they didn't say it is a photograph or it's a, it's, a, it's a drawing or a chessboard. But with the techniques that we now have, we can. Um, and I'll come back to that later, what we now want to do with this. So this is just one of the examples of the projects we had. Um, what has this program brought us, brought us in the short term? Well, in general, uh, a lot. For example, we, the researchers have to submit a proposal that's being reviewed by a review committee, so we had a lot of proposals. 11 projects we've now done. Uh, the, the, the proposals are being reviewed by academic res uh, academics, uh, so they are in a, a review committee. Uh, the output are data sets, tools, blog posts to share what we've done. 
But mainly, we've learned a lot about the changing user needs of researchers. Uh, and also, we've learned a lot about our collection. Um, because what are these changing user needs? On the right, you see a couple of the researches we've had. Well, to put it blunt, what we've, we've published more about this in the references. Um, this is basically the most important one. What these kind of researchers say, so the, 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 the data science or the, the digital humanities researchers, they say, I just want the data. I want it all, and I want to do with it what I want. Uh, and I want to know what the quality of the data is. So with digitizing newspapers, OCR is a big issue and a big uh, a problem. And we don't, aren't always able to tell what the quality is of the, of the, the OCR that we provide. And especially for academic researchers, that's fundamental. Um, and we also came to the conclusion there is not a typical DH scholar. There are so many research questions that also uh, need different approaches. Uh, their, 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 their skills change over time and there are hardly any standard tools and techniques. There are there, but there are so many others being used as well. And for us as, an, as, a, as a library, we tend to say, well, why not we build just one tool that solves everything? That's not doable and we're not going to do that. What we do need to be more transparent about the data that we have. If people, and that's what we actually saw when people were sitting on the desk, they are asking continuously questions about the data and we were not always able to answer them and also about the algorithms. And an API that's more technical is not enough. There, there we need more ways to, to provide access to the data. Now what has the program brought to the participating researchers? Um, because we don't only do this for ourselves, but also for researchers. Well, they got time to do research because we actually pay them. Um, they were what we call catapulted into the digital humanities domain. For them, this was really a way to dive into a, a new domain. They got inside knowledge about the data. Because they were in the office, it was for e really easy for, for them to walk through my colleagues on two floors high to, to ask a question instead of walking to the desk in the reading room. And, and you never know if, if, if the person is there. They got all sorts of new methodological uh, knowledge, uh, but it also impacted their career. So out of the 11 uh, people we had who had a temporary contract, all got fixed contracts, not only because of, uh, of this project, but it really helped. And for example, in the case of Thomas, he won a nice prize together with one of our research uh, engineers. What brought us on the long term? Um, and that's actually so, what I think is, is quite the most fascinating part about this project is that we we gained a lot, of, a lot of knowledge about new techniques. So this computer vision, is really, that is something that we otherwise would never have explored. Uh, and it brings us a lot uh, right now. Um, and we got a lot of ambassadors. These, these researchers, they are fans of us. I mean, this wasn't the aim. We wanted to collaborate with us. But they like us, and we like them. Uh, but they, they, tell, they tell about us uh, in all sorts of ways, even without we asking them. Uh, so this is, this is Thomas again. I'm taking him as, as the main example. Uh, he participated in a, a, a website called University of the Netherlands, where, where academics tell in 15 minutes what their research is about. And he completely told about the project he did at the KB. And this is one of the most popular, well, a, a very popular uh, scientific YouTube channel. Um, and also he, together with Melvin, wrote an, a great academic article where, where they, they acknowledge the work that we do. So you, you really built ambassadors. 
We got a great academic network because of them, but also because of the, 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 the professors who were part of the review committee. Uh, we often invite the direct colleagues of the researchers we have for an afternoon to discuss the ongoing project. So we, the, the network is really expanding. Um, and we got a, several follow-up projects on, on the, the relatively small projects that we did. Uh, and that's the second uh, project that I would like to show. It's a, it's a project by Frank Harbers on the right side, a, a, a researcher from the University of Groningen. He was interested in how genres in newspaper articles evolve over time. Uh, and he basically had the same use case. He said, well, nice, uh, Delver. I can select on show me all the articles, but I want to know when did interviews uh, start in newspapers or columns or, or feuilletons or reportages. And, and you can't do this by this. Now, he participated in a big research project where they manually annotated uh, a lot of articles in international projects. Well, we could link them to our digitized collection and we could train the computer, recognize features in articles saying this is an interview, this is a column, this is a sport reportage. It was a great project. We built a, we built a demonstrator that you could try on where you could basically paste a text of, a, of, a, of an article in and the computer says, well, uh, given the, the, the training that we have, we think this has a 87.8 quality uh, score thinking it's a news item. Um, so this is more for, for demo purposes. Um, but we thought this is really interesting uh, for researchers, but also for us. Uh, so we participated in a research proposal that got granted uh, by a national uh, funding scheme. So this project with Frank ended two years ago, but it immediately evolved over in a bigger research project where two postdocs and two uh, PhD students are working on. So they are continuously developing these algorithms and we are part of this research project. So we immediately learn everything that's being done and try to implement it. Uh, and that is actually my last point for the, well, this brought as well. It allows us to think about the services we have and actually improve or build new services for other types of customers. Because that brings me back to the, the customer pyramid. Thomas and Frank uh, are, are, are the guys on the top. They, they, they approach us using the data uh, and building stuff. But what they've done, Thomas, is he, he managed to classify the images which we do not offer yet in Delver, but I know that a lot of users in Delver would love that. And the same goes for Frank, if we can select for other types of articles in Delver, uh, it would be a great feature in Delver. So what we basically are trying to do is to feed back the results from research project back into services, reaching out to a wider audience. And that brings me to my last point. I'm doing perfect on time, cool. Um, is that, that I am pleading more for libraries to be a, a partner in research projects, and especially within the digital humanities domain or digital science domain, as an applied partner, as a valorization or a dissemination partner, but also an active research partner. And I would like to point to, to Peter Leonard, who, who gave a, a fabulous keynote three years ago at this conference. I wasn't here, but one of it was filmed, and I'm, I often looked it back. He's uh, working at the uh, Yale Library, uh, did a lot of uh, digital humanities projects, and in his keynote here at, uh, at the Liber conf conference, he said, well, what we're trying to do at the library, we're putting TDM, text and data mining, in the mainstream. We want to incorporate it in search portals for bigger audience, not alone for researchers. And it links really well uh, to what Alex Humphreys says as well. He's working for, for JSTOR, JSTOR Lab, uh, and one of the the, the best tools that I've seen the last uh, couple of years is Text Analyzer. If you haven't, if you don't know it, please try it out. It's a great tool where you can upload any text. 
the text is automatically being analyzed. Uh, you get all sorts of keywords. You can adjust the, uh, the outcomes. And it then shows related articles within the JSTOR catalog based on the input article that you provided. Fantastic feature. Helps a lot of researchers, I know. It's only the JSTOR catalog, but still, great catalog. Uh, and what he says is the same, because they're using the types of techniques that digital humanities scholars, or what you would now call artificial intelligence scholars, uh, use, but then apply it into an interface or an, in a tool for a wider audience. And what he is, he's calling this applied digital humanities. Uh, and I love that. I think this is what we are working on as well. Um, but, so I'm, I don't want to put myself in the same position as they are, but I don't, we are not there yet uh, at the KB. We are working on it, but we are not there yet because uh, we do are working on, on the second layer. But for us and for me, the biggest challenge is to incorporate results for the third layer because that's where the most, that's where all the Dutch people are. And it would be the, 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 the best feature, oh, sorry, before I take the picture, the, the best thing what we would like to do is to incorporate the results from research projects into a service where, where the general audience is. So, for example, th this online library, there you can find ebooks. One of the hard stuff is to find actually ebooks. So, we're experimenting with all sorts of recommendation techniques from commercial parties where we have all sorts of questions and doubts about the black boxes that we're applying over there. But we actually, the techniques that they are using, we, we already have them in-house. So we're now doing a small uh, project to see, can we build a recommender ourselves based on the, 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 the knowledge that we gained through research projects uh, to incorporate in, in this service so we can help an even wider audience. So eventually we want to feed back the results to the, to the, to the big audience. So what did we gain from five years of research and residence? Final slide. So we helped our customers. We understand them better. We know how to help them better. Uh, we also know what we should improve about the data, though it's still very complicated to improve it actually, but we know what we should. That's already step one and we can talk about it or communicate it. We improved our position in the academic field, not only by assisting them, but actually being a full partner of them. Um, we learned a lot about techniques, but we became this full research partner. And I think that's really fundamental to realize that we, we were, we're more than only, uh, only research helpers. Uh, and we feed back the results into new services uh, for more types of customers. So if you look for a new great project, um, a program, we would love to, to help you out. And um, thank you for your attention. We have time for questions. Do we have any questions to Martin? And we still have time at the end of the session to ask questions, so no question for, yes, please. Um, we say, okay. Christoph from Genesee Library. Um, a very simple pragmatic question. Do you find that the six months half time is enough? Basically only three months. Yeah, well, it, it, it's about scoping. Um, it's about scoping and also about finances, but yes, because it's really, um, it's, it's small scale and really focused. So what we, the, the, the challenge for the researcher is to come up with a research question that is focused and that you can address in, in six months. Uh, and especially the type of researchers that we invite to do, they're early career researchers, so almost done with their PhD. Um, so they, they, they're not started, they, they, they already showed that they are able to do research, but then they first they did four years of research, now they have to do it a small question in six months. Um, but we build a team around them, uh, so they are there, the, the research software engineer are there as well, 
Uh, and the digital scholarships advisors are there. So Lotte, for example, is one of them. And they are very capable of, of bringing down large questions to really small questions because they know the data. They're the best people who know the data and what is possible and what is feasible and what is not. Uh, so we, we actually noticed that, that for some research it's really hard to finalize it in three months. And those are actually the researchers that are more experienced because they have bigger questions and often more philosophical questions than the really handsome questions. But the researchers such as Thomas, who, who he actually finished his PhD while he was working with us, they really have a very concrete question. And it's, in his case, we found a nice answer. In most of the projects, we don't find a clear answer, but it's a starting point. And also, it, it really helps them to, to create follow-up projects uh, as well. So, so yes. And actually, I, I wouldn't plea for making it longer, uh, just to, to get a well, the, more the, the, the agile type uh, uh, projects. Now our next speakers are Geraldine Fitzgerald and Chio Van Dune. So please come on the... Uh, I am sorry, Martin, I haven't introduced you. <laughs> so just a few words about you then after Geraldine. You are actually research department chief, uh, head of research department at the National Library of Netherlands. So if you have some question uh, about Martin Bioch, please ask him at the at the break. So now, um, I'm very pleased to have Sjoven Dune. She's Head of Teaching and Research and User Experience at the Library of Trinity College Dublin. And prior to this, she held the roles of a Research Support and Humanities Librarian in Dublin City University. And um, um, previous, she, she managed at, um, at the National Disability Authority. Sjoven is passionate uh, a passionate advocate of open scholarship, and she is a member of TCD Open Scholarship Task Force and, an, and of Altmetrics Ambassadors. She recently completed a Master of Science in Education and Training um, at uh, Dublin City University. Her thesis was on ethnographic study of the undergraduate research journey. Other research um, interests include virtual and augmented reality and the future of academic ebooks and lifelong learning. So please, Sherman, the floor is yours. Thank you, Emily. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, very happy to be here. Just to say at the start, we had invited um, the students that were working on us with this, the students that, had intellectual, that have intellectual disabilities, but it's a nice problem. They weren't able to come because they're really busy on work placement, but yeah, we would have loved for them to come and participate in this. Um, this has been a really, uh, I suppose, valuable personal and professional experience, and I think Geraldine would agree as well. It's been fascinating um, insight into understanding the diverse needs of our library community. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we'll talk to you about today. Um, the slide, just to say, I went to Wikimedia, just, I wanted to get a nice image, and I put in autism and science, and it gave me back this uh, brain um, sort of slice of a mouse, but I thought the colours were nice, so that's just a, a bit of history there behind the, the, the image. So what we're going to do today is to talk um, about the various research strands that went into this project that we were involved in, um, as I say, to make a really rich tapestry. And I think it's important uh, that we outline maybe the societal context as well and just talk to you a little bit around the, a lot of the shifts that have been happening in the social policy side um, in Ireland in recent years, um, because nothing obviously happens in a vacuum. 
um, and then we'll talk a little bit about our approach to the research and some of the research outputs that uh, we created from this. Um, one of which uh, was a, a, a video that we did with the students around their reflections <coughs> on the research. We won't have time to show that today, but Geraldine will show the other um, output that we have from that. So, as I say, a whistle-stop tour of some of the, the uh, Irish equality legislation in recent years. So, just in the last four years, and some of you may have been following that aren't from Ireland, there's been an awful lot of uh, change in social policy and legislation. Um, everything from, uh, you know, civil marriage rights, same-sex marriage, abortion rights, um, recognising our traveller community as an ethnic minority, and then um, the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So back in 2006, um, the UN adopted this uh, convention. Ireland signed it, uh, or sorry, yeah, signed it in 2007, but it was only ratified last year. So it took 11 years for us to ratify this. Um, and I, I think there's something around a lot of, you know, the change in the year that was happening as well, that, that people are seeing that, you know, uh, diverse communities obviously have rights, they need to get this recognised in legislation, and so um, this, this is you know, a powerful way of, of capturing that. But it is you know, still recognising that you know, people with disabilities, there's only half, you know, very low levels of employment and education participation as well. But um, we have a minister here, Finian McGrath, and he's very much about changing the rhetoric around disability and shifting the emphasis to ability. And actually, just recently here in Trinity, our student, our disability service um, had a sort of a, a survey participation of users here, and they came, they voted for the name of the service as Ability Hub. So I think that's really telling the way um, we're changing. So we started out just to talk to you about this project. We started. Uh, working with the centre, uh, Trinity Centre for People with Intellectual Disabilities. Geraldine would have had a lot of interventions with them. She would have uh, teach, taught the students. Um, and really, this is a sort of a quite a new um, approach to education um, for students with intellectual disabilities. And it's the first of its kind in Ireland. It's a two-year certificate. Um, and it's very much about empowering students to think about themselves in society, to uh, critique society, to um, advocate for um, themselves and uh, very much uh, focused on group work and debate etc. Um, one of the reasons I mentioned earlier that the students, uh, one of the students couldn't come is because they're on work placement so this is really, they do um, work placement as part of this as well so it's, it's very, um, it's a, an excellent um, um, programme. So it's about intellectual disability but a lot of the students that have it also have autism and so that's what we're looking at today um, and just a, a look at some of the literature on autism and, and higher education what is it well it's a neurodevelopmental disability and it affects one percent of the global population um, and van he's uh, has researched that it's actually one in 68 children in the states um, and then you often hear this phrase on the spectrum well it is literally a spectrum just like you know every human is different every uh, person who has um, autism is completely different as well so it is it's not the black and white absolutely not um, and also the literature as well calling out uh, making the invisible uh, visible which linda doyle would have talked about um, in her keynote earlier if we, if we don't know what it is if we can't see it if uh, students are coming to our desks frontline services and they have it how do we know what it is if we don't recognize it so certainly our research um, is helping to, us to uncover that 
Um, Trinity College Dublin has seen a six-fold increase um, in students with autism spectrum disorder just in the last five years. And we have the highest number of students with, with autism um, in, in, in the country at the moment. And the problem is, though, that our infrastructure and our support services are not keeping a pace with that. Um, and so we're, we're sort of playing catch up with that. Um, but there are some you know, interesting initiatives and very concrete solutions that are happening very, very recently in this regard. And we look at those as well. So I thought it was interesting to talk about our, our own university's research strategy. Um, Linda would have launched this only two weeks ago, and it's a very bold and exciting approach to um, tackling research, um, very much uh, thinking about you know, moving away from uh, the traditional academic in their university environment and coming up with solutions to answer our research problems. And you know, just totally coming at it at a different angle, an engaged research approach where you co-create the research with the people around you in your community. Um, and it was very, I suppose, uh, reassuring for us when we, you know, uh, Linda would have gone around and consulted with all of the units. And uh, we, Geraldine and I, in our own research in this, were actually doing this. And it was great to see it actually captured in the strategy in this way. So back to our own experience and our own story, as I mentioned, Geraldine would have um, taken uh, this group of students and done, um, you know, uh, library workshops with them. Um, but there was a, an inkling she had a bit of a, you know, a worry that there wasn't much engagement. They weren't coming in and using the library as other library users were. And so she spoke to the module coordinator and had, you know, shared these concerns. And um, the coordinator uh, hypothesized that there were these five anxieties, really, that, that these students were experiencing. Um, you know, navigating the physical library, interacting with service points. The alarms going off as they, come, as they exit the library would be extreme. It's, it's not nice for anyone, but it's extremely stressful if you are a student with autism. Um, you know, the fear of approaching desks, um, this you know, it's phenomenon of library anxiety, um, and it's common for all students, not just students with autism or intellectual disabilities, they, we all have it. Uh, well, hopefully we as librarians don't have it as much as others, but certainly a lot of students would have it. Um, and so what we wanted to do was to think about how we could maybe uh, do some research and delve a little bit deeper to ask questions around why that anxiety is there. Um, and again, you know, strategy are, is important and we try and live our strategy as much as, as, much as possible and within our own strategy we say that we will think like our users and understand their changing expectations. So, you know, it's one thing for us to say, oh, is this the reason that this is happening? No, you have to go deeper and actually work with your community and find out, well, what, what are the reasons for these anxieties? So what we did was then, it was a really an engaged uh, research approach. Um, it wasn't this linear for us. Um, we literally just got the students together with their module coordinator and we slowly and incrementally um, started having conversations with the students around why they were feeling anxiety. Why weren't they using the library? Um, tell us more about your fears so we can try and understand better. Um, we wanted to co-design solutions with the students as well and explore the how and the why together. Um, and as I say, this sort of framework that we see, um, and, and Linda, I keep talking about Linda, but she does reference this a lot, this engaged research framework uh, where you work with your community and you generate ideas, very iterative approach. Um, and I guess what helped us in our um, scenario was these, this is a very small group of students. Um, I, I, you know, 
it, it demanded very intense and sort of close working with them. Um, and so we had to build up a rapport and trust with the students. And they obviously already had that with Geraldine, but it was, they were really welcome to me into, the, into their research community as well. Um, so we sat down and we thought about, well, what can we practically do for other students? How could you be ambassadors for other students with autism? Um, you know, how can they identify and see themselves um, in their community? And we thought that we'd work together on producing a video um, that would look at those um, issues. And Geraldine will talk about that in more detail. So like any good research project, um, what we did was we obviously we had to get um, ethics approval. And in our case, we would have gone to our uh, School of Education um, Ethics Committee. Um, you know, there was a lot of the usual uh, procedures involved in that, but the participant consent form, um, they, you know, we had to create an information leaflet, uh, we had to be guarded, vetted and cleared, so that's police clearance um, for here. And the issue around parental consent, and we just included the quote here from the module coordinator, who was a little bit, uh, you know, rightly so angry that they had to go and ask their parents for consent. These are adults, why are they being treated like children they're not children at all and so uh, she's raising that at a university uh, sort of uh, level to try and get that changed um, so we think about uh, how we approach ethics differently so i'm going to hand back over to geraldine now and she'll take us a little bit more through the actual research so i think i'll have to speak quickly um no it's fine I've, i come from cork city which is uh renowned for speaking quickly. So hopefully I'll be clear. So what I want to do briefly then is just go through the actual process, the project process that we were involved in and uh, wrap up then with our findings. So the group basically, uh, we didn't want to be prescriptive in what we were um, working on. So we wanted to find out from the ground, so ground, ground research, um, grounded research, what the students felt, what their concerns were about barriers for engagement. So even though at the back of our minds we knew there were five anxieties, we wanted to hopefully confirm those, but see were there other things that were going to crop up. So we had focus groups, um, we asked a number of questions, and we got the students to put their answers on post-its, and we then gathered with the students um, the post-its on basic questions about, you know, what do you think the library is, how could the library change um, uh, your experience of, of learning. Three main questions, we got the responses, created them, put them into little piles, little themes, and from that then uh, we confirmed the five anxieties and then we looked at other things that were new. So these were the things that we felt were more related to autism. Um, so some of them were actually quite stark. Asking for help was actually seen as a failure. So some of the students said, it's a failure in independence. So that, that to us was shocking and very sad and we wanted to change that. Um, obviously, a lot of students with uh, autism feel claustrophobic, they want to flee. So if they're in situations that are very confusing, for example, in a university library with very complicated ways around, lots of books, lots of people, lots of noise, that can be sensory overload, it can be just too much to deal with, um, so they want to flee. So the expressions like, you know, take a breath when they got out, that, that again was, um, we knew about it, but we were, you know, upset to think that it was that awful for them. And then the idea that, you know, in current trends in libraries, social spaces, they're very trendy, lots of students sitting around talking, discussing their research, their study. They did not like that. They said that was breaking the rules and uh, they did not like people kind of sitting, sitting right beside them. So that whole area of uh, general student interaction, some of those areas did not appeal to them. So it was very interesting information and we needed to work on it. 
very importantly, we also wanted to keep these students at the centre of the research. These were the, going to be the, the authors of their destiny in terms of this library video. It was an orientation video. It was going to be professionally produced because we won an award from the Equality Office to produce it. Um, and the video was a great medium because it, the students, a lot of the students learn visually. So it was um, also a, a tool that would be accessible 24-7. So for future students, for their peers, this would be a fantastic medium. So it all kind of came together. So this basically enabled the students to become advocates for um, intellectual disabilities, but also for autism. And as we found out throughout the process, actually the students were starting to advocate for other students with disabilities. They became more self-aware, and that's one of the things in autism. A lot of the students are not completely tuned in to themselves. So the whole process of group work as a team, we all sort of helped each other, and the students became more self-aware about anxieties they may not have been you know, aware of initially. So it was a fantastic process. Um, this is the video. Hopefully we have time to run it. Um, and we'll just do a quick run of it. Remember, you can also use the Trinity app on your smartphone to enter the library. Hi. Uh, I need to find this book, Fillmore by Broadwell. Okay. Can you find the book number, please? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Is that right? Film Art Broadwell? Yeah. Okay, here are the results. You need to click on library catalogue only. So yeah. that will show us which books are in the library. You need the 2017 version. Okay, there it is. That's the number. They're in the Usher library. There are a number of copies. Do you want to make a note of the number? Uh, yeah. Okay, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. The library is a good place to study in a group or by yourself. Use the library signs and bookmarks to find your way around the library. Where are you going? Well, you need to get the book on film, right? Well, yeah, you just remind me. I need to get a copy as well. I know where it is. Well, they always have movies. Yeah, but I've had them here for... Well, they always have movies. Why do you think they have so many, though? Book number is 7914310110. Ah, this is where I found the book. Ah, here we are. Alright, well, I'm going to go to the attic uh, space to study this. It's a nice, quiet place to study. Okay, I will meet you in the orientation space in 10 minutes. We can go for lunch then. Alright, see you then. Bye. Bye. Hi, Dave. Hi. 
author. I'm just checking my book, then I'm going to borrow it on a fast lane. Okay, so I'll see you in a minute. Yeah. Always have your student card with you for borrowing a book. Follow the instructions on screen. If you have any problems, ask a member staff and they'll be happy to help. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Are you borrowing a book? Yeah. Let's get your library card, please. Thank you. <coughs> Now just put this bill back in a week's time, okay? Thanks okay. very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Next please. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Wanna grab lunch? Yeah, sure, why not? If the alarm goes off at the barrier, the book was not checked out properly. Don't worry, go back to the desk and library staff will help you. If you want to use your laptop, all the libraries have Wi-Fi. Find your favourite place to study. To find out about all our libraries, look at the library website. Okay, so quickly moving on from here. Um, so the video, as I said, was a perfect medium um, and, a, and a learning tool. Since then, um, we obviously launched it and um, that has raised our awareness, uh, awareness of library work within college. It was a fantastic achievement. Um, it drew on the students' um, interests. They were very uh, involved in um, a curriculum module called film studies, so academic um, modules they did on the course. So that drove their interest in, in filming. So it was a great um, result. Um, the film premiere was an excellent opportunity to meet their family and other researchers in the university. And on top of this then, we have um, now concluded our second phase, which was to co-author a journal article with the students. So we have submitted an article to Disability in Society. We told them it was going to be an academic journal, but we chose Disability in Society because they have a certain um, series within it called uh, Current Issues, and it allows a student voice to be brought to the fore, and it doesn't require the same format of the academic journal. So the students you know, have produced a fantastic article. It's now in submission, and we're hoping it'll be published fairly soon. So watch our space on that one. Um, so reflecting on the research, uh, basically, it was a user experience opportunity. So it gave insights to us, um, valuable insights into what we already knew, but new, new material. The lived experience is what we really want to know about. That's what research, uh, to me, certainly is about. It's not just, uh, as Lynn was mentioning, it's not just theory, it's applying it. So it's lived experience. The research also has pointed out to the importance of uh, contextual learning for this group of students. So we need to know what we're offering is actually relevant. So the context of being in a library, the social, cues that they need to be aware of, and then the tasks they need to be able to perform. Um, they've enhanced their life skills, the group work, the advocacy, and so on. They've all been developed through this process. We hopefully have moved over the, the radar a tiny bit in terms of our research as becoming research uh, partners, potential collaborators, and uh, that has actually borne fruit since. So uh, one quick um, uh, mention of this is the idea of escape route through escape systems. So we have library surveys that have backed up some of the information from other students about finding the library um, overpowering. So we are now in discussion with the disability office who have done a sensory survey and uh, of the greater um, population of students with autism and escape rooms seem to be a feature they need to have in place and the library certainly needs to consider this in the future. So that's a very practical thing we need to consider and we are investigating at the moment.
Um, this was only launched yesterday, the first international autism toolkit, and that's from the Disability Office. It's a web resource, and they have fantastic um, resources there for students. They have opportunities to interact with staff directly. They have uh, tutorials. They have um, champions from, from their own peer group. Um, so that's a fantastic backup to us, and it's something we can tap into for future research in that area. Also, engineering have come up with a navigation app for students with intellectual disability for route finding. So we're hoping um, for next steps that we can incorporate that into potential um, library tours. So we're looking at different ways of engaging with the students to make it more realistic for them. So we are looking at virtual tours. We're looking at sensory library tours. We're even looking at the Book of Kells, the tours that are in the long room where students have um, headphones you know, self-propelled or self-directed tours. So these are all options that are open to us and we have luckily been placed in such a fantastic college that we, we can explore these further. So um, there, there are going to be more strategic relationships with departments and with the centre itself. So we, we think the way forward is great and uh, we hopefully have made the invisible visible uh, through our research. I'm just going to leave you with that last quote, uh, Barack Obama, President, former President Barack Obama's last quote, which hopefully encapsulates the essence of what we did, which was basically to get people who the research is about in involved as participants in the research, and the diversity will inform policy and um, the ultimate result. Our journal article is available in the references, you can find those, and maybe if we've time later on, we might just discuss about research. If anybody has come across the situation before, groups of non-traditional students, students with intellectual disabilities, with autism, what your experiences have been, so we can discuss this if we've time later, and what research really means in that context. Thank you very much. We have still time for questions. Yes. Could you put the slides? Yes, of course. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That was actually more interesting than I thought it would be. There, that was really fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you? Do you have any evidence of these students that leave you that it has improved? I don't even want to say their employability, but do they? Do you know where they want to go after you? And is the open world post-university as receptive of them as you are? Uh, yeah, so basically uh, one positive response, they've only had one cohort graduating since this, and they've all graduated. Um, I think what really um, appealed to me was a request, a formal request from the students for a graduate library card. So it's... it's um, a normal expectation for students, for graduates, to get a library card to use the library. But up until recently, there was never a request for a graduate library card. So basically, these students now feel they belong, they are entitled to study in our library, and the card will give them access. So to me, that signals an idea that they will be involved in lifelong learning. So that, to me, is a, a signal that we're on the right road. Um, you were mentioning about university not taking it maybe different departments not taking it the same way or attitudes being and what like what so they become students. Yeah. And once they have graduated, yeah. does it enable them to progress into the next step of their career? Or, or, or do you have any evidence of this actually having helped them? It's only yeah, I guess we only did it last year and so the first cycle of that programme 
um, only graduated last year, so I don't think there's been any data gathered on it, but would, I'm sure the coordinator is looking at that in terms of employability and graduate skills, etc. and we would hope to feed into that and, and try and see if there's an indicator for interventions like this that would help uh, with that, but it's, it's a very good question. Um, but yeah, I, we haven't got the data yet, it hasn't gone through enough cycle. So Ines, you will please come with me. <laughs> so Ines Byrne is um, responsible for uh, digitization at the National Library of Scotland. And uh, she is starting out as a project manager for mass digitization. And uh, she worked as a digital collection specialist for five years. Um, this includes responsibility for developing approaches from growing the born digital and digitized collection, overseeing digital assets management activities, and steering the development of new services model for digital scholarships and digital humanities to exploit the library's digital collections. Mm -hmm. Please, we are hearing. Thank you. Am I putting my one? Sure. Fantastic. Hello, can you see me? Ah, okay. Um, yes, uh, I also am a fast talker. I'm also not a native speaker, so good luck, uh, everyone. Um, so, uh, yes, um, I will talk about um, something that ties in quite well, I hope, with our first pr uh, presentation, Martin's presentation, only we have not yet reached the stage that the KB at. Um, this is all about... Uh, 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 a thinking process that started about two years ago and has um, now changed, but I'll come to that at the end of my presentation. The, um, the I call it beyond the user, usual suspects, building a 21st century reading community. And um, it is all about text and data mining. And of course, computational analysis of large text corpuses has been around since you know, the mid-19 or the end, late 1940s, and it has seen a fascinating growth throughout the 20th century. So why am I asking, um, or why am I presenting this as 21st century reading? The um, internet, in its public form, started out as a consumption-based model driven by the philosophy of downloading. It then transitioned into that social web and it was all about uploading and uh, the growth of the internet-based data into big data enabled us to develop what we, you know, we heard earlier today about the internet of things, uh, machine learning and this semantically structured web. And um, our digital literacy skills will have grown alongside, or will they, or have they? And that was one of the first questions we asked at the National Library of Scotland um, when we started to look into providing a, a workshop series that addressed this 21st century reading question. We all know and we all talk about the rapid change that digital technology enables um, uh, and goes through. And we often also point out that um, digital literacy skills can't lag behind. Um, and this is not 
just true for, for the you know us uh, 30 plus year olds uh, but actually and maybe more crucially it is true for the um, for the born digital uh, generation so digital literacy should not be something that should be just assumed um, <clears throat> So yes, the ability to analyze large bodies of text has been around for the last uh, 70 years or so, but the availability to and the embedding in our wider society uh, is very much a 21st century reading thing. The um, uh, getting this type of distant reading right is as crucial now as workshops on how to send an email would have been back in the late 1990s. Um, and Scotland um, has us as the National Library. We are the largest library in Scotland, but we are as a national library also quite small in comparison to other national libraries. So back in mid-2017, a few colleagues and I, from collections, from intellectual property, from digital, we sat together and we knew we wanted to and we needed to upscale our text and data mining offer. But um, at that point in time, what we had were data sets. We had data sets online. We didn't have a dedicated digital scholarship librarian role. We were advocating for one at that time, um, and we therefore didn't have anyone who knew what we could um, usefully do to deliver data sets to audiences in terms of um, pr providing useful data uh, in terms of their tidiness, in terms of their comprehensiveness, in terms of the format in which we should deliver all of this. Um, so basically, I'm not talking to you as an expert at all. I'm basically re representing um, a medium-sized national body's thinking in maybe, I don't want to call it naive, we were not naive um, in, in, in a negative sense. We literally didn't have an expert in the room and knew we wanted to change something. So for anyone who is maybe in the same position, who is thinking this is something we should do but doesn't quite know where to go first, um, you are basically who I'm talking to today. Um, and we asked quite easy, quite simply, who are our audiences and for text and data mining? And we understood that text and data mining was a growing, working method within the academic sector. We knew that at the same time, there were still lots of academics um, or academics teaching strands who did not incorporate text and data mining into their teaching. So we also knew that within the UK and within the UK's um, information sector, the British Library were the forerunner uh, in terms of actually actively promoting their digital collections to digital humanities scholars, mainly through their BA labs. Um, we wanted to change something um, about the way we uh, provided our TDM offer, but we did ask what is our most logical next step? How do we how do we go about this? Do we create our own lab? Is that the, the thing to do? Um, we understood there were lots of labs across Europe, and um, we also understood that their primary target audience were academics. Um, so the link between the academic world and the library world was very obvious. That's the usual suspects. 
And um, we asked, is TDM really meant just to be that? Now, interestingly, I'm learning today that other people have asked this question before. This is where the naivety is kind of my get out of jail card. We literally had, we were not digital um, um, exploitation minded uh, colleagues at that point in time about two years ago. We had collections, we were minding our, uh, everyone had a busy desk, and we didn't actually research the uh, TDM community. We knew of the, of the obvious places, we knew of the KB's um, work, we knew of the BL's work, Library of Congress, the usual suspects really. Um, so we did ask, is there not a wider stakeholdership? Um, basically, um, is there a trick that we shouldn't miss? And um, what that resulted in was a year-long externally funded workshop series to bring together stakeholders from four different areas. Um, the first one is one of the obvious, it's the academics, where we said um, these are the ones with um, background in digital humanities or in linguistic analysis, they are practitioners in text and data mining and our uh, second uh, obvious one was the cultural uh, sector organisations, um, so the ones that actually have the collections. We then also invited um, what will be called innovators, think tanks, charities, uh, skills developers, uh, anyone in, who basically engages with this, um, and, and disruptive software and creative reuse of content, who, all, who makes that their, their kind of um, a core of their existence, anything around data-driven innovation. And then, as a fourth, we invited representatives from what we call the industry, i.e. the ones that actually developed software that is TDM relevant. Um, we felt that collaboration was essential so that we could understand what it is that we can offer each other, that we can learn from each other, and that we might need from each other. And this is really where our Beyond the Usual Suspect came from, and um, that's what we did. We invited people. I'm, I've anonymized my data, and it is very, very rough. So from these four sections, broadly speaking, we invited eight academics, and we had 11 attend. We invited 11 different cultural sector organizations. These might be very targeted or very large. Um, there was one, this is beyond us ourselves, there was one. Um, the innovators, more or less, although I have to say innovators also mean think la things like university-based um, innov innovation facilitators. So there might be particular, um, uh, uh, kind of almost like a lab or something, people, uh, facilities that allow innovation at, in a university environment. So that's why that number is relatively high. And from the industry, there was one. So that is, uh, was a first sobering experience, and it's something for you to bear in mind that uh, that's basically the reality of it. Um, we did run our workshop based on a, a whole range of research questions, and um, in terms of audience analysis, the research questions we asked were, um, who are our text and data mining audiences? I, I know it sounds, it sounds basic, but we started at the very, very uh, start. How do they read? What do they want to read? What are their distant reading skills, or maybe the lack of their skills? Um, which tools do they use, um, or do they need in order to do data manip manipulation? And maybe, um, most crucially, are we relevant to them, and will be, 
will we be relevant to them in the future? So what we did um, as part of our first workshop, we got the people, roughly 25 or so people in the room, we got them together and we agreed uh, naively um, what our TDM audiences might be. So this was a little mentee exercise. If there was more time, I could ask you the same uh, today. This is what we came up with. So you can see the, um, the uh, eight uh, types of audiences that we thought are a TDM audience. And as you can see, in terms of are they important audiences or not, there wasn't a very clear winner, but the heritage and libraries and archives did stand out, closely followed by the academics and by just what we call citizens. Um, that was workshop one, and I'll come back to this in, uh, a bit later down in my presentation, uh, because we repeated that same thing at workshop four, which was roughly nine months after the first one. Um, also, maybe to just throw into the mix, in order for us to understand TDM audiences, we did um, we, we thought we needed to understand what TDM actually is. So here's a little excurse of what we covered in these workshops. We basically asked quite critically, why is TDM useful? What does it actually offer? Um, we asked, can we trust the algorithms behind the data sets? What about the bias? Uh, can we trust the tool that did the, the, uh, the data sampling for us? And this ties in maybe with um, Linda Doyle's um, comment this morning that um, um, which is no, there's no such thing as uh, uh, the, the neutral design. Um, the same question. And we talked about big data. We talked about the imperfections that exist in big data and how they are basically ironed out through the sheer size of the corpus. But we also talked about if you put bad data in, does it mean you get bad data out? So we spent, you know, um, each workshop was a day long, so we, do, we did have time to kind of just mull over these questions um, as a group. And uh, we also understood that the latest uh, kind of wave, so to speak, of TDM is to moving towards this seal of approval um, data set. So they're adding quality to your data set, but obviously that comes at a cost. Uh, so we talked about that as well. And also, we spent half a day uh, tool speed dating, which um, for um, us, uh, from the library, from our library, who are total novices to all of us, uh, was, was amazing. And if anything, I can uh, only advocate uh, this. The, the, here's the, the range of tools we looked at. We were basically demonstrated what they can do. And I've kind of broadly characterize them by what what they stand for although that's it's a bit unfair because these tools can some of them can do more than what i've written down but we basically had um, um, linguistic academics with us um, from glasgow university and they um, talked us through these tools and i remember two or three of the names i don't remember at all which one stands for which of these white words i also don't it was about a year ago just to say i also don't really remember um, what exactly they did, but what, did, what does stick with me is they exist, there is a whole suite of them, they are different tools for different things, they are potentially hard to grasp to begin with, but you can you work your way into them. And what the message of this is, and this is why, I'm, why I think um, having what, what is called library carpentry sessions, like teaching your own staff on these kind of things, do it. Let your, let your reading room staff or your curators or your metadata staff go to this for half a day, 
learn all about it and forget all about it. What, 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 what will stick with them is the atmosphere that, that this half day created in their heads. So when a researcher comes to them and even just indicates, I want to read all of your directories from 1900 to 2000 because I want to find this particular thing, they will remember that they might be able to pinpoint that person to something better, to something different. So um, that was a really, really uh, valuable exercise where the impact is still with me, even without me having, you know, well, I've forgotten all of these terms. That's not the point. The point is, um, is, is that emotional impact that stayed. Um, so what were our findings? Um, <clears throat> we did learn that text and data mining is not answer-driven. It's actually question-driven. And it sounds easy, it sounds straightforward. It was, a, it was an, an aha moment to us. It was like, oh, right, okay, yeah. Um, it has to surprise you. It brings up new questions. That's what it's all about. And um, it allows you to interpret and reinterpret. It allows you to deconstruct and reconstruct. And I think if this message can be... Um, um, brought forward to the policymakers and to the funders, then that would be that that can only be beneficial. It's not it's not a a straight path. It's it's supposed to be a playground and an experimental and learning through not doing but learning through going through it. Um, we also thought um, that it was, was worth asking how do citizen data sets enter the universe of corpuses? So how does a data set become a corpus that others use? Um, and how does uh, citizen research reach the audience, uh, the bodies that hold data sets? If anything, that would have been my, my question to Martin to see, um, but we can maybe talk about that a bit later to see how, what, how you go about that. And um, how do you represent the unwritten metadata, which is required to put the corpus in context? Now, this goes a little bit beyond text and data mining, but we did have a few creative thinkers in the room, and it was all about um, there is metadata in the recipient's head. So if you were, if this screen was a skyline, and the New York's, a picture of the New York skyline, without any metadata attached, you would either know that it's a New York skyline or you wouldn't know. And it's based on information in your head. And how, how does that unwritten metadata, how is that, how is that mineable? Well, I guess it isn't. But, so we talked about that, and I think that um, it played a bigger role in our chance than I had thought it would. So that's why I thought it was worth putting on the slide. Remember this one. Uh, so we did that in workshop one, and then we talked and talked and talked and learned and learned and talked. Um, and then we did the same again about nine months later, and it looked like this. So that's workshop one, and that's workshop four. A bit sobering. Not dramatically different, but sobering, because surprise, surprise, who are the two forerunners? It's the usual suspects. And... Um, the citizens lost out a little bit. Um, I think it became clear to us that you might have to start with the usual suspect and then add something else later. Question mark. Um, we did have or no moments um, throughout the workshop series, and we asked people to kind of uh, put them together for us. Um, there were a few people in the room who said they, even at the end of the whole series, were still not quite sure what it is that makes TDM the only answer to that question. And I liked that. Because I think if you, 
if you do have an alternative route, you might not need to worry about all these tools that you have to learn how to use. So that may, might be a good kind of um, uh, sanity check before you start question. Um, not using tools often enough. Basically, that requires retraining again and again, and that in itself is an issue, um, especially if you don't have a lab-style service that helps you uh, through your, uh, through into your next research project. Um, there will always be bias within data sets, be, uh, be they sampled or not, big or not, there's always bias. Um, the experts need to understand what it is like not to be an expert. I think there could be a whole presentation just on that issue. Um, it's easy to get it wrong. Um, I think all of us agreed that that, that that would be true. We need more co collaboration across the technicals, uh, te technical sets uh, setups, <clears throat> technical companies, and the cultural sector. But we also said the workshop series was a lot of talking, and we need to start doing. So is there a, a, a way to establish a meaningful interdisciplinary and cross-sector network? Well, we said um, the industry is adopting TDM, but it's not necessarily a heritage collections focus. The academic exceptionalism won't go away. And be, to take it beyond the usual suspects, we need to start where the people are. So we wanted to collaboratively peer learn. We, have what we wanted it to be pragmatic and honest and genuine. This is what the workshop uh, threw up. In the middle is, is the National Library of Scotland. And you can basically see there's the, the different stakeholders and there are arrows between them. The arrows don't go in all directions, but lots of arrows point to us. And we also agreed, rather than calling ourselves a network, a community of interest might be a better term. Um, so we are going from from talking to doing. Um, we want to reconvene as this community of interest. We want to have practical element to it. I'm speeding up now. Um, we want to keep investigating the mainstreamability. And that was my personal big thing as well. Is this mainstreamable or not? I'm, I'm now going to rush because I want to show you this. There is one at the University of Birmingham, initially uh, started at the University of Nottingham. It's called Click Dickens. And it does exactly what I had in my mind. There is a there's a text of um, a, a, a data set, and on the right, there are basically buttons instead of tools. And you can click one of these buttons, and I clicked on concordance. And I said, a search in Bleak House for and the. And there are my results. It took me eight and a half seconds. It's meaningless, but it's there, and it's aimed not at the academic academic. So very briefly, in like under one minute, what about our National Library? Where has it taken us? Well, the thing is, we have, since the workshop series ended, employed our first digital scholarship librarian. She is amazing. Her name is Sarah Ames. Um, she should become all of your new best friends. Um, but she runs her own path. And basically, what she's teaching me, I'm her line manager, but she's teaching me, and I'm very open about this, that in order to be accepted in the TDM world, you have to enter it usual suspect. So what we will do is we, we want to be part of the professional game. We want to do this and this and this and this and this. I'm sorry. And um, more, more importantly, maybe we want to say there's going to be a basic service and a plus service where you get some in-person support and there is a funded service where we might have collaborative things going on. And also we are going to we are going to, um, um, what's the word, we're going to uh, stagger the data sets that we're putting out. We're going to focus on text 
I'm gonna move on to image data and bibliographic data, very excited. And then maps, audio, visual, and web, and linked open data. And that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ines. Please, Dr. Nick Barrett, come on the stage. Nick is director of Senate House Library and very well known as a broadcaster and historian uh, for his work on BBC TV series for Who Do You Think You Are? Please, we are listening to you. Thank you. I'll be very quick. Uh, this is a provocation piece. And there's lots of generalizations, so I will try and talk quickly but relatively clearly. Um, just to frame the conversation, as I'm sure we're aware, dement uh, dementia is a major problem facing society. Over 50 million people diagnosed. That's probably an under-representation. We know that certain communities are less likely to identify than others. The World Health Organization suggests that direct and indirect health costs will reach $3 trillion by the end of next decade. Yet, for the billions of dollars spent on research, we are still no closer to finding a cure. Two problems. Firstly, the way clinical trials work is very lengthy, for good reason. But also, the more we understand through neuroscience about the way memory and the brain works, the more complicated it is to isolate some of the challenges. So what I want to talk about are some of the non-genetic forms of dementia, and the focus particularly on lifestyle <laughs> prevention. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence wrote in 2015 that there are some steps you could take in midlife to reduce your risk of being diagnosed or living with dementia. A lot of it would make common sense, cut out smoking, cut out alcohol, improve your diet, sounds fun, uh, reduce your weight, become more active, but most importantly, the key factor, if you don't do, you're more likely to get diag uh, diagnosed, is be sociable, communicate and act as people. Yet, we are living in the digital age, and this is where it becomes more relevant to us as a community, um, where there are both challenges and opportunities, particularly around new data sets, and I'm thinking user-generated, and the way that we tend to live our lives now online, although there are obviously some scares now emerging, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, for example, data theft, but also with linked data and research data management moving into the library space, there are now some collaborative efforts to try and speed up clinical trials through collaborative data sharing and linkage. So there are now ways of speeding up some of the trials to waste less money. But also some of our professional skills are beginning to permeate through to a different branch of research which is about personal archiving and personal research really where the family history element comes in the more we create data digitally and share it the more inbuilt metadata we have access to i'm thinking about this historic way that we have gathered photographs in our family possession often in analog form there's nothing on the back to tell you who it is when it was taken and where it might have been nowadays of course when you upload a photograph to one of the sharing platforms, they tend to be geotagged, date stamped, and often with low level AI, you have face recognition to show you exactly who it is. So there are some interesting metadata opportunities, and I think a wider conversation for us as holders of special collections around how our collections that we put out will help a new generation of people undertake this sort of research. Because there is emerging evidence that as people focus on their family history, they become more sociable. They go into family history groups, local history groups, they share experiences, but also they're beginning to externalise their memory. 
They're creating personal timelines. And it is now increasingly thought that the act of doing this will help with all those lifestyle activities. Personal timelines with what you would call flashbulb memories are key. And the really interesting thing is that they're often multi-sensory. I won't go into some of the projects that the Memory Studies Association have looked at, but the way people remember events often are linked to an exoskeleton of memory, an event that you've seen in the news, where were you on the day that Kennedy was shot, that sort of thing. So you start to wrap your memory, and the more people write it down and share it with family, the more it is easier to reconnect with those memories. And this is where we come on to the final slide, but the real provocation, is that how can we help people living with dementia? Well, firstly, as we've seen, public engagement and impact and co-produced and designed research is now really key for the academy and, in particular, the library, that bridge between higher education and society. And we're finding increasing uses of our content to help people living with dementia, not just the collections, but the space in which we work. And I just wanted to share this example of this whole sense of multi-sensory re-engagement for people who are living with dementia already. Boots, for those who don't know, is a high street brand in the UK who focus on pharmaceuticals, but interestingly in their history they used to provide public libraries. Hold that thought. What they've done is team up with the University of West London and go through their archive collection of historic scents and perfumes, which are no longer for sale, but people living in the 50s and 60s who might have dabbed on some perfume or whatever and gone out and enjoyed some music and dancing can now recreate those smells. And when this has been introduced to people through the project living in care homes, traditional methods of reminiscence therapy have not worked. Photographs, which are visual, haven't reignited a memory. But when it's linked to the smell, suddenly the memory, the flashbulb, is triggered. Particularly when you then have a music memory box that plays the music from that time, and they start talking about that flashbulb memory. So the point, therefore, is if we can help people start to co-design this memory management system that brings the digital with the physical, help with that embedded multi-sensory metadata, we can make a fundamental difference to the way people work. It is applied personal archiving using our skills and our collections to help people start to organise their lives, to help the prevention, but also help add dignity and relevance to people's lives who are already living with dementia. And there are many examples of where the memories that have surfaced have then fed back into community archives, which have helped more people connect in improving multi-generational learning and education, which connects back into schools. So that's the very, very quick, hopefully getting us back on time, provocation piece. And as part of the general questions, happy to elaborate further. Thank you. Thank you, Nick, to have been so quick. Uh, if there are any questions in the audience, we have still four minutes for that. So please. If you want to, to join me, that people see you. Is there any questions? Not yet. Perhaps I have one. Um, each of you said many things uh, about how to make invisible visible. and. Can you, yeah, please, yeah, if you, you want to sit. Um, which are 
our option to make society being aware of our action in favor of making science a way of empowerment for population. You have many, many examples of that during the, your speeches, but some quick, quick idea to make society being aware of all that you say, because today we are aware now of this great project, but outside the library world, which ideas can you suggest for tell the world? I suppose from our perspective, um, we would use our students, we would ask our students to maybe spread the message. So um, they will go out and they will tell people about you know, how they were involved in research. So that will maybe encourage other students to maybe go to university and feel that they actually belong. So students that would have intellectual disability and autism. Um, so that they feel that they have a right, that there is a possibility, there's a potential for them. Um, and a, a very important point that I probably didn't mention, or well, maybe we didn't stress it, was um, there has to be a whole college approach now to uh, supporting these people because people that are not getting the proper supports will not succeed. So basically, success is based on adequate support, not necessarily in somebody's condition. So we need to be very much aware of that. So that's how we can help, I think. I think for me, um, the um, the academic reach that's uh, that's an easy one. That network exists and uh, it's very active, and, and, and I think that will work quite well. Reaching the beyond, um, we haven't in a way thought about it yet. Well, we we tried to reach, and it we we partially failed. I think we failed by eighty percent or something like this. So it is tricky. Is it, it, there's no solution, I think, other than the traditional way, which is not ideal. Tough question, to be honest. As, as, uh, making my, but, but I think the most important also, what is the, the, the common denominator of our papers, what I really liked about this panel is that we're doing it together with, with the people that we're doing it for, right? So that, and, and I think that's really the essence, and also the lessons that we are learning as a library sector is that we, we shouldn't think or, or, or make up things ourselves, but do it together with, with the people we do it for. And I think we've seen some great examples of that. Yeah, just to echo as well what everyone else is saying, I think it's really important in this, and you mentioned it, Nick, as well, in this digital age that there, we maintain a sense of belonging and community. Mm -hmm. I think libraries are really important at you know, bringing people together, giving them sense of ownership in their community, and especially if we research with, with, with members of our community as well, they feel like they belong, I think that's important. And I think it's thinking of the space outside our spaces. Uh, a lot of the projects that I've mentioned started in the academy, moved to the public library sector, got picked up by volunteer groups and ran. And in many ways, the academics weren't, I would call, left behind, but were very interested observers having kick-started the process. So there's a thing about collaboration which takes a lot of work, but it's also letting go, and there's a huge amount of listening, just to echo those points. We may come in with a pre preconceived set of ideas, but actually some of the interesting projects have been where they've been taken by those who have been seen as participants, but actually become far more the co-producers and owners of those projects. So it's not being afraid to let go. Any more questions? Any questions? So thank you so much for our speak to our speakers. <laughs> I think it's time for a break. Thank you.